Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Eric Peterson, it's really awesome to have you on the podcast this morning. Thanks, guys. Great to meet you, and thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. So today we've got Jason Loftus, myself, and, and Eric, obviously. Before we get into your background, what we've started to do is just talk about some really interesting stories to kick off the podcast, because so many of us have had so many cool experiences in the field that it's kind of fun to share those experiences and, and generate a little conversation before we get into the nuts and bolts of how you got to where you're at. So... What's a good story that you have from the outdoors that you end up telling around a, a picnic table somewhere? Yeah, probably one of the coolest outdoor stories comes from my, my own time hunting in the mountains. It was shortly after my wife and I got married. We did an archery hunt in, the, in southwest Montana for elk and set out early before light, spotted a herd of elk up on the mountainside, kind of made our way up towards it and she had rifle hunted some before, but wasn't an archery hunter. So I thought this is going to be sort of like taking a kid out hunting, like and uh, experience some frustrations and learn a few things along the way. But it turned out we got really close. We snuck right in this herd of bedded cows, and the bull was kind of wandering through the cows, bumping them and trying to get them up and moving and get him up to play or whatever. So we had kind of uh, easy access to sneak in, and the wind was in our favor. So anyway, long story, we snuck in on this herd uh the bull made its way around we just sat there and, and unfold and eventually the bull wandered over to us we were only about 30 yards from the closest cow and and he wandered between us and that cow and it was pretty it, it became really apparent real quick that he was going to essentially run us over she was like three feet behind me and i was out front with the bow and this thing figured out that something was amiss and kept coming closer and closer and by the time we were at a head we had come to a head the the bull was about eight feet away and i was at full draw and it was face on trying to figure out what i was and what the thing right behind me that was shaking so bad was uh, so i i held and held thinking it would eventually turn and it didn't so i picked a spot made the shot and we both watched the bull tip over um, about 10 yards away so that was one of the coolest experiences to share with my new bride at that time so super fun <laughs> that's awesome you know and that's uh i think so many of us start out down this outdoor photography world because of those experiences like that right i mean i grew up hunting and that was the i i just couldn't get enough of it and photography is like you can hunt year round yeah i think that's the beauty of uh of using the camera instead of a weapon is that you can you know you can continue your season beyond that first if you if i was hunting with a rifle season's over but with a camera i get to go out and experience it over and over again which is a really cool part of photography you know the best thing about hunting is having meat in the freezer and in this with this current covid situation it's kind of nice you know they talk about all these meat shortages and if you're a hunter you're like well you know what i got a freezer full of meat yeah between that and and a garden and my kids raise a couple pigs each year um for some pork and we have chickens so yeah we're 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 doing we're doing okay through this yep and plenty of wild game <laughs> i know it's 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 amazing um give us a little brief description of how you got to where you're at and obviously we're going to dig into that a little bit but i i read on just all the stuff that i could find on you that you grew up in minnesota you graduated uh college and the very next day you moved to montana just yeah. get us to that point <laughs> yeah i knew exactly where i wanted to be i just needed to finish college to get there and I had been coming out to Montana every summer while I was in college to work. My my oldest brother had a construction business in Bozeman. So I'd come out and work for a few months for him. So I knew where I wanted to be as soon as I finished up school. So the day I graduated college, I had my truck packed and I uh, moved out here and continued doing construction until I landed my first job in the photography world as a newspaper photographer for a small daily newspaper in Livingston, Montana. So I worked there for a few years and then eventually got a job at the next highest level newspaper, which was the Bozeman Daily Chronicle in Bozeman, Montana, and worked there for almost 10 years as a staff photographer and photo editor. And then in 2011, 
I left the newspaper industry and started doing uh, full-time freelance work, which has morphed a lot over the years, but that's kind of the trajectory. So did you go to school for photography or media or broadcasting or any of that kind of thing? Yeah, my undergrad was mass communications, which had a print journalism aspect of it. So that was my specialty. I started out writing, actually. I was doing sports writing, picked up a camera to illustrate some of my stories when I was in college and found that telling stories with the camera suited me better. I enjoyed it more. So then I kind of transitioned full-time into photography, did an internship at a newspaper, just doing photography. And um, so that's kind of, yeah, I, I did I did have a background in in uh, photojournalism. And then my graduate degree was in science journalism from University of Montana. It was not so much photography, although I used photography to tell stories through that program, but it was more just how to convey complicated subject matter like sciences and biology and wildlife and that kind of thing to the general public. So there's a lot to unpack there because I, I can see all that education and all that preparation for becoming a still photographer's cool, but then you've taken it a next step and now you're doing a lot of video production and that storytelling that is so important when it comes to telling these video oriented or these, these stories that you tell in these little short films, which are awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I, I lean heavily on that photojournalism background that I have both for my still photography work in the past. And now this video work that I'm doing, um, my, emphasis, whatever the subject matter, because my subject matter tends to be all over the board. Um, but what, whatever the subject matter is, my emphasis tends to be on good quality story. So good characters, story development, narrative arc, those key elements that we learn in basic journalism school, I think apply to, regardless of what medium you're using or what story you're trying to tell. When you started with the newspaper and you were doing all stills, did you have any video influence at that time or did video come in at a later date? I didn't start doing any video until my master's program. That was really the first time I even gave it a try. I was 100% still photography in my newspaper career. And then um, post-newspaper was I was doing the freelance work. It was primarily magazine and then some commercial work, but it was all still work. So when I w went through that graduate program, my thesis ended up, my final project ended up being a film project because I wanted to get some of that skill set coming out of that program. I wanted to figure out video a little bit. I had already worked as a professional photographer for about a decade by that time. I was ready for a little bit of a, you know, mix it up a little bit and try something new. It proved to be a really fun time in my career to experiment and try a completely new platform, learn all these, you know, there's just so many moving parts when it comes to video with audio and all the extra gadgets that are required. It was a good time in my career to kind of dive into something new, but still be coming from that storytelling background. It's a little bit easier now to go from stills to video just because these cameras do everything, right? right? Right. Was yeah. that one of the things that helped you out? Would you think you would have done it if it was the old school where you had to have a traditional video camera and then a traditional still camera? Or was that even a factor? No, I think you're right. I, I think I would have been too intimidated to jump into a completely new form of technology. Uh, I was At that time, I was shooting a Nikon. I think I was shooting a Nikon D600 when I was shooting that first film. So I did have the video op, you know, option on that camera, um, which is what I ended up using for most of that film. That's changed a little bit since then, but I, yeah, I think you're right. I think if I would have had to try and learn one of those giant throw over your shoulder kind of, you know, Sony <laughs> cameras, I, I probably, that would have been a barrier for sure. It's nice to be able to just switch back and forth now. It's nice to have that, you know, that option is so user-friendly and a lot easier and quicker to learn, I think. Well, and I think like today's world, when people are using the devices that we use to consume media, I mean, video is just all natural, right? It just is, yeah. why not do video if you can? So Yeah, absolutely. So if you had to pick, well, if, you, if somebody said, okay, you can only do one thing for the rest of your life, would you go stills or video? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, uh, I'd probably go stills. I still, I, I, I love the challenge of capturing it all in one image. I really like now having done a lot more video over the past couple of years. It, each year it kind of becomes more and more video versus photo in my professional, in my business. I really like the times when I'm hired to just shoot photos because it feels like simplifying and going back to the basics and, and challenging yourself in a more basic level. But it takes 
so much more, I think, to really stand out as a still photographer nowadays. Jason, I'm coming during the conversation. You got you probably have a question or two you want to throw in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, you're, you're great. I actually was going to ask that same thing because I I followed Dirk for quite a while on on Instagram and I've loved his work for a long time. And I was curious because and I I still see a lot of amazing stills on his Instagram page. And yeah, I was just wondering that same thing. And do you find time to try to get out and do it for fun still? You know, do you spend time at the park being where you know being where you're located or do you still enjoy just getting out and trying to do some uh, wildlife photography or things of that nature? Yeah, I do. You know, there are times when I am in between projects or I don't have something specific going on and I start getting a little antsy to get that creative bug out. And my wife will say, it's, you need to get out of the house and go go down to Yellowstone or you need to go take a road trip to eastern Montana or go, go shoot because she knows that's what really lights my fire is just putting the camera in a backpack and going for a a day hike with the camera, um, not having to worry about audio, not having to worry about bringing gimbals and, you know, 300 pounds worth of equipment just to get a simple shot. So, yeah, I definitely do um, still get out, especially Yellowstone in the winter. I love going there at that time of year when it's so quiet and there's not many people and you can kind of disappear into the landscape. And as you guys know, it's a kind of a magical place to be that time of year. Yeah, it really is. So with your stills, is that, I mean, you've been all over the, well, I don't know if all over the world is right, but you've, you've done a fair amount of traveling. Talk a little bit about that and some of the opportunities you've had with the still camera. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it really started out as a newspaper photographer at the Bozeman newspaper. I was fortunate enough to be in the industry at a time when it was doing well, it was thriving. So we were Uh, the outdoor editor and I were pitching stories just kind of like on a wing and a prayer and see if they would bite. And they usually did because there was a budget then. So one year we pitched a story idea to float the length of the Yellowstone river from Yellowstone national park to North Dakota. And, uh, and they bid on it. So we, so we, we spent about four weeks uh, floating the Yellowstone river and, and we did a four part series, just um, broke the river up into four distinct parts. And, uh, floated via raft and drift boat and then canoe for the last half. On that trip, we actually hatched the idea to follow a Iditarod dog musher through the Iditarod. She was, she's a Montana native and had been relatively successful in the Iditarod for years. So we pitched that story and they bid on that one too. So we ended up going up and following this musher, Jesse Royer, through the length of the Iditarod, which was another really cool experience. When I, after I left the newspaper industry, I started doing some freelance work for an international NGO that did work in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, So I documented a lot of their work in Central Asia for about five years, um, several trips each year. Um, So that was a great experience and just getting to do some international work. Um, And then, you know, my kids got a little bit older and noticed dad being gone more. So I kind of tried to rein the international travel back in and started working on projects closer to home, which is kind of where I'm, I'm at now. They're, my kids are, are 10 and 11, so it's, they're at a really fun age to tag along with me on these jobs or just to be around. So I, uh, most of my work now is relatively local in the West anyway. So before we go down, I got so many questions about that, you know, moving into that yeah. phase. But before we go to that, how was it when you're traveling to, I mean, if, if nobody's been to your site yet, you got to go check out on your, I saw these pictures on your website. Some of the travel stuff you have in Afghanistan, I'm assuming most of that is Afghanistan and Pakistan. That's yeah. some spectacular stuff. The little, the little kid that's jumping on the rocks across the river just the way you're using, mm. using the light and some of those, uh, it's just amazing to go look at that stuff. What was it like over there doing that? Are those people shy of the camera? Did they dig it? Did you, I'm sure doing it several mm. years in a row, you had a relationship. Or are you going to the same places? Yeah. Or are you going to different places? How did that work? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, just you know, learning the culture and meeting these people, it was really rewarding for me. It was all over the board, their reaction to the camera. Um, you know, mo- anyone under 12 were clamoring to get in the photo. So they they were, you know, they were trying to get in front of the camera. Um, women were trying to avoid it as much as possible and mostly wearing burkas. So they were, you know, hidden anyway. And men, it was sort of, there was a sliding scale of happy to help all the way down to don't even point that thing at me. So, you know, it was, it was, 
I tapped into my photojournalism background and and tried to read the situation and be respectful and and yet get the photos that I needed. And a lot of the times we were, you know, we were traveling with a project manager who was from that area who also helped us just know kind of what was and wasn't acceptable or or where a situation might be better to just keep the camera down for safety's sake, keep, you know, keep a low profile versus, okay, now we're in an area that's safe and go ahead and feel free to photograph whatever you, whatever you see. How sketchy was it to be over there in that part of the country during that time? Was there a lot of safety concerns all the time or what was it like? Yeah, it was sketchy. I mean, it got continually um, sketchier as the years went on. I think I was traveling there from 2012 to 2016, I believe, or 2011 to 2015. So there was a lot of activity there and we had you know, armed guards either with us or in a follow car. And especially around the capital in Kabul, there was a lot more activity, um, terrorist activity in that area versus, you know, when we go out to the Wakhan Corridor, which is one of the most remote, most remarkable mountainous areas in the world, tucked between the Pamir and Himalayan mountains, you know, just really, really remote area. There wasn't any activity and any real fear of anything out there because nobody would... <laughs> Nobody other than the locals were out there, so uh, it was a lot safer in that area, but just sort of dependent on the region. But the folks that we worked with had a pretty good um, finger on the pulse of what was and wasn't safe in what areas, so it felt pretty comfortable. Hey, Eric, did you have any like close calls, or was it pretty much you were pretty good situation most of the time? I mean, we yeah, there were close calls. There were times when we had to hustle out of a village under the darkness of night because there were... Um, there was Taliban um, activity in the area. They were burning cell towers, which is what they did before moving into an area to cut communication. So there were situations like that. Or once once we got kind of pinned down in a village that got closed off because there was a battle going on outside our window, we were watching this all shake down. It had nothing to do with us. It was more of a battle between military police and local troublemakers, I guess. But we, you know, they they essentially shut down all travel in and out. They cut trees and brought in big boulders, and covered and uh, blockaded the road in and out of the village. And it was just in total lockdown. So we were stuck for about a week there, not unlike, you know, early stages of coronavirus, where everybody's clamoring to get to the grocery store. And by the time we got there, the shelves were bare, and then everybody's, you know, hoarding and. It was kind of a lockdown situation in, in in its own right, but much shorter. I think, like I said, we were there for about a week. What's your mindset in that situation? Are you fearing for anything or are you like, okay, we're going to get through this, no problem? Um, yeah, I mean, I, trying to keep a positive mindset and just focus on staying positive, I guess, because gosh, it's, you know, with all that time to spend in your own head, it can quickly spiral out of control. So yeah. Stay positive. Uh, try and distract yourself with whatever you can. We had a satellite phone, uh, so we could occasionally get a call in or out to family or to the head of that NGO that we were working with. So we had some communication, which helped a lot. The only channel on the TV that was in the tenement-style apartment building that we were staying in had the only channel they got was Russia Today, which is like a very uh, one-sided news program. <laughs> so. <laughs> It was a sort of a strange Orwellian um, experience for me, but I don't know. I, I like that adventure. Um, I like seeing new parts of the world, and it was a good time in my life to do that because I, you know, I didn't have kids at that time, and or they were young enough that they weren't aware. So right. How many people are you traveling with when you're in those situations? Was it like three or four, or did you have like just you and somebody else? Yeah, just just a writer and I, and then we always had a project project manager slash driver slash interpreter. So there were generally three of us, and they were usually six week trips because it took so long to. By the time we actually get over there, you know, and then take a Toyota Land Cruiser Hilux or whatever out into the remote areas, that's a three day trip, and then and then we visit the school projects that they were building and and interview teachers and do the documentary work that we were doing. It, it all takes a lot of time and, and energy just to get from place to place over there. So it ended up being fairly long, intense trips, but some of the most rewarding work I've ever done for sure. 
I, I mean, that just it got butterflies in my stomach now, right? Just uh, while you're there, you're like on heightened alert. I, I did a couple of trips into uh, Zimbabwe when it wasn't a good situation over there. And whenever we got to the place we were shooting, it was great. But getting there yeah. was always so sketchy. And it's like, man, do I really want to be here? And But yeah. when you think back on it, it's like, man, I would do that again in a millisecond. Totally. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you realize just how heightened you have to remain in that situation until you get back home and you realize oh i never really came down there's always some level of precaution that you're taking or or you're not, you're always kind of on the edge so and i don't think you realize that until you get back home and come down and you're like whoa yeah that was kind of intense well like i say anybody listening to this podcast you need to go check our show notes and and we'll have links to eric's stuff and just some of these images that he got over there is i mean i'm sure you got tons more than what you're showing on the website but what's on the website is amazing stuff so thank you i appreciate that all right so much of the research that i was doing just on you that i could find i mean there's a lot of stuff about these little short films that you're doing which are super cool i mean jason and i were talking earlier before the podcast and jason was remarking how he was inspired just by watching one of them and i can see how that happens as far as wanting to stay local how do these projects start? Is it all generated by yourself or do you have like a, a little team of people where you guys are constantly looking for stories and you're like, hey, this would be a cool documentary or, or is this all you just watching and paying attention and saying, you know what, I'm going to do a documentary on this thing or this subject? Yeah, so the film work, the, the short documentaries that I'm doing are, are really just passion projects. You know, starting out, it was I was 100% still photography from a business standpoint. And then as video technology changed, like we talked about, got easier, the entry level got easier. I did that first film in grad school, and I really liked that process. I really liked that platform of storytelling. It allowed me to dive deeper into a story through film than what I felt I could through still photos. So I just kind of kept riding that wave, and I would just these films are all just passion projects that I do on the side of my still photography business. So they started out not paying really at all. Occasionally we could find a, or I could find a sponsor for them or I find a, you know, a company that kind of aligned with it. But for the most part, they sort of start out as a story that I just want to tell. And, um, I do the background work and interviews and things like that. And then I get them to a point where I can put together some sort of pitch deck to pitch to potential sponsors. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, or I'll get a grant or something like that that helps fund it. But mostly these are just stories that I feel passionate about telling. Um, and then hopefully by the time it's all said and done, I can cover my expenses or make some money on it. And that's changed over the years, obviously. Like the first film, we covered expenses. We did some crowdfunding with Kickstarter to help pay for it. We got some smaller local sponsors to help pay for it. And then, you know, each film I made, it seemed like the sponsorship came a little bit easier. And then this last one I just did, Paradise, was certainly the best case scenario because I got a grant from Patagonia. So that kind of took care of the financial burden of, of this and I could just focus on the storytelling. So yeah, it's been a progression for sure. And they're still really primarily my passion projects which then over the years have led to more and more you know, commercial video work as companies see these projects that I put out and realize, oh, he's also doing film work. And I like that one that he did. Maybe something like that would work for our company or our conservation group or whatever it is. So that's kind of been the progression. Can you give us a, like a really short little description of each one of these videos for people that are not familiar with what, what you have? I don't think there's so many out there that it will take too much time, but there's some really good stories. If you could just give us a an idea of what each one of them is about. Yeah, you bet. Um, so the first one we did was in was when I was in grad school, and I did it with one of the professors there, Jeremy Lergio, um, and it was about an 89-year-old ultra runner who uh, chose to do everything in his life the hard way in order to stay active and alive. So he ran these long-distance races, and he cut his own firewood by hand with a cross-cut saw, and he did all these really authentic, cool things. I was going to grad school at the time and ended up living in a cabin on his property. And I would come home from school or from teaching and see him out doing these things. And I started photographing him out, sharpening his crosscut saw or splitting firewood or whatever it was, because the guy was 88 at the time. So it was pretty wild. I did a magazine story for Trail Runner magazine about him, which then I approached Jeremy and said, hey, there's this great character. I did this story. 
but there's so much more to tell and so much more to show about him. Jeremy had had some film experience, so I asked him if he'd help me make that film. So that was the first one. The second one was called A Few Steps Further, and it was kind of about the, the crossover between endurance sports like ultra running and hunting. There's so much, at least from my perspective, I was seeing a lot of my hunting friends getting into a more active lifestyle in order to get further back into the wilderness or whatever. And I was seeing a lot of my trail running friends getting into hunting for the protein, like we talked about for the, you know, good, clean, locally sourced meat or whatever. So I was noticing this trend and I kind of wanted to tell that story. And I had a perfect example of that and a buddy of mine who I run and hunt with. So we uh, ended up doing a Alaska mountain goat hunt the same year he ran Hard Rock 100, which is one of the hardest 100 milers in the country. So I documented those two and then kind of weaved those two endeavors together for that movie a few steps further. And then The Ride was a story about ski joring, equestrian ski joring, which is a sport where horses pull skiers behind them through a solemn-like course. And it's kind of a perfect mashup of uh, old west and new west where it's like the cowboy equestrian sport meets uh ski bum puffy wearing you know more new west folks um so that was just a fun story that i i found a great character who was a woman and had won the national championship two years in a row and the idea for that story was that i would follow her through her attempt at winning the third national championship and then the most recent one is paradise so there was a gold mine proposed on the border of yellowstone national park and some of the local business owners that are really outdoor recreation dependent in paradise valley um, kind of banded together to fight off this gold mine because they felt like there was already a really robust um, economy based on outdoor recreation in the valley. And they worried for their businesses that bringing in an industrial sized gold mine would would ruin that economy. So it, it told their story through the eyes of one mountain man character who kind of became an unlikely environmentalist through this process. So hopefully that was a short enough rundown of each of those films. No, it's perfect. And there's trailers for each one of these. And then how are you distributing these videos? Because I think it's all video on demand through Vimeo, right? The two longer ones are Vimeo on demand. So the hard way, the first one in Paradise, the last one, those are both uh, right around a half hour. So they're both on Vimeo on demand. The other two are just are just out there in public on Vimeo. You can find on my website. Because they're shorter, the ride was only eight minutes long. It's hard to find at home for that kind of thing. It's not like you can get it on a Netflix or a Hulu because it's so short. So mostly, like I said, these are passion projects that I uh, enjoy telling the stories. And then I just put them out there for the public. Right. Yeah. So when you say we on these projects, I mean, obviously doing video, you need kind of a, you don't have to have a huge team, but you do have to have some people to help you out. Cause there's just so much to do. I'm assuming. Yep. Yep. Um, what's that process like? I mean, I think about covering a hundred mile race, you know, yeah. that is insurmountable. I mean, you just think about the logistics behind, how am I going to get enough shots to help illustrate and show how difficult this is how, how are you doing that? Can you just give us like a rundown of your team or your thought process when you're trying to figure out how this is going to get done? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's a good question. It, it varies a bit. I ran about 40 miles with him through that 100-mile race with the with a little camera uh, just to get like the nighttime footage and the struggle of what it what it's like to run through the middle of the night with just a headlamp on your head. So a lot of this, I mean, none of my budgets are so big that I can afford to hire a decent sized film crew. Primarily it's me shooting this stuff. And ideally if I have enough of a budget, I'll bring a buddy along or two, you know, someone to run a second camera and ideally someone to run audio. But a lot of times it's me or me and one other person kind of, you know, I say winging it, but there's a lot of planning and preparation that go in ahead of time. So I think, you know, the coming up with a shot list to know what you're, what you're going for and knowing what the story is ahead of time and storyboarding it out. So you know, the shots that you need and the transitions that you need and um, how you're going to get from scene to scene all that pre-planning becomes even more important when it's a one or two person crew versus having, you know, eight to 10. But, but also it's impossible to bring a bigger crew in because I can't, you know, like the Alaska goat hunt, it wasn't like I had a budget to fly a crew up there to do this hunt. So it was, that was just me doing the filming on that and just me doing the filming on the actual race. Paradise was a, 
I had a bigger budget, so I had a bigger team. So in that case, you know, most of the interviews, I had a second shooter running cameras so I could do the interviews themselves. Or when we hiked, the main character hikes to the top of the, the mountain where the gold mine was going to be um, put in. And on that shoot, I knew it was going to be a full day and it was going to be the main narrative thread that carried you through the story. So there I brought a team of four along, one person to shoot stills, and then someone on audio, a second camera, and myself, and a drone pilot. So it varies, but I think the theme or the the one thing that's mandatory is like a lot of pre-planning and storyboarding. Nowadays, you can't get away with just your standard locked off tripod shot, right? right so you right. do, like you do have to pretty much, you can't do a shot or a show or any project without drones. Right. You got to have the gimbals like you were saying right. earlier. I mean, all this stuff. So it it's, that's why I was curious about how many people are out there with you because the films are remarkable. I love watching them and I, I just love that kind of stuff anyway. But you see the variety that you've got going on and you know that there's a lot of thought gone into it. And I was hoping for your sake that you had people helping because that's a ton of work. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And it, yeah, you're right. It's like, you have to have the gimbal, you have to have the drone, you have to have good audio and video sick. Um, so that right there is either three people or you're schlepping a lot of gear and, and wasting a ton of time on setup and teardown. So the more help you can get to a certain point. I, d I also don't like having a huge footprint on these shoots because I feel like it distracts from the story itself. So I try and keep it bare bones as much as possible, but still cover the bases of what we need to get. So it's a, you know, I'm still, I'd say every time I make one of these films is just practice for the next one. I don't feel like I have it anywhere near dialed in or mastered, but, but it's all just a work in progress towards the next fun film that I work on. How much thought do you put into like the equipment? Are you you know, at the end of the day, it's all the story, right? And you could shoot a whole thing on an iPhone, and if the story's good, people don't care. Right. But I know some other people where it's like, and I put myself in this camp. Yeah. It's like, if I'm going to spend all this time, then I want to shoot on the best camera possible because I want all this stuff to be living forever. If I can shoot it in 8K, I want to. But then you run into all these budget things where it's like, well, yeah, it'd be great to shoot in 8K, but now we need to have $200,000 to pull this thing off. And that's, you know, that's just not going to happen. So where do you fall in line? Do you pay attention to that? Or are you like, you know what? The story is the important thing. Let's just get whatever we can get with whatever we have and make that happen. Yeah, it's funny. I try and surround myself with gearheads so that I have those people on my team that that know the best equipment. But I've never been focused on the equipment itself. I, I oftentimes get something that I you know, a new camera and I'll learn it just enough to do what I need it to do. And I feel bad about that sometimes. Like this thing has so much more potential than what I'm giving it, but it's just the way I'm wired. I, I think I just always focus more on character and story and assume that whatever I'm shooting with is going to be good enough. Or like I said, surround myself with the gearheads who take care of that part of it. And I focus on the story, but yeah, it's a it's a fine line to walk. Like you want it to be high quality and the best possible, but you don't want to get bogged down in the technicalities of it and lose sight of what you're really there for, which is the the best story you can tell. If you look at the model that's out there with with Yeti, for example, I mean, they're I watched one yesterday, which was it was a thing with Jack Johnson and Ryan Bingham. Oh yeah, two musical artists. If you're not familiar with those guys, and it's sponsored by Yeti, and I think. And the whole thing, I saw him sitting on a Yeti cooler once with yeah. with not even Yeti showing up. You know, I just know what a Yeti cooler looks like and it's in the thing, right? Yeah. I think your style works into that sort of a thing. Are you looking at those opportunities with different companies where you're like, huh, all I need to do is tell a good story. And if I can have that good story be sponsored by this company or if I can do a little product placement here and there, but it's not a hard sell, it's very soft sell. Are you looking at those sort of opportunities? You know, as you're moving in this direction, it looks like it's prime time for what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. There's a, I think Yeti is the gold standard of uh, companies who get that kind of lifestyle branding, right? Like they're not, you're right, they're not hard selling anything, but they're telling good stories that may or, you know, that may or may not have any other product in it. Usually they do, but really, like you say, really under the radar, but, but they're telling, they're showing that lifestyle that they're affiliated with. Uh, I think the challenge 
today is that there are so few Yetis and so many uh, filmmakers that want to be part of Yeti's model. So, and that's changing. There's getting to be more and more brands that are seeing that effectiveness of telling a good story versus trying to oversell something. So, yeah, I definitely, I'm definitely always on the lookout for, here's the story I'm telling, what brand not only kind of affiliates with this lifestyle, but would be open enough to let me do my creative thing and not feel like they ha have to be heavy handed about their branding. And that's, that's a hard thing to find. Like most marketing agents or, you know, people in the marketing department of these brands, they're not all on the Yeti page for sure. Like a lot of them want to see X amount of time with their product in front of the camera for the, for this. And that's just not a fit for me because I, my style is more documentary. So I'm not going to do a branded content kind of thing. It's just not my style. I like telling authentic stories. And if it aligns from a lifestyle perspective, great. If not, then it's not going to work. But that said, like in the hunting industry, there's more and more of companies that are kind of getting on that bandwagon. Sick is another good example of that. I feel like they're kind of figuring that out or have figured that out. So there's there's more of those coming. I think it's way better to have that. I mean, it, well, I, and I guess it's my personal opinion, but I'd much rather watch something that's very soft sell and know that it was brought to me by some company rather than seeing all this hard sell stuff. And I think that stuff got worn out in the last decade where you see all this stuff on TV where it was a lot of these hunting shows. It was just, oh, yeah, look at this product. I, I'm successful because I use this particular thing. That's just so yeah. lame compared to just a good old-fashioned story that is so much more appealing. I think it's pretty common. Obviously, Yeti wouldn't be a success if it, if it wasn't that way, right? Right, yeah. And like I said, I think there's going to be more and more of them. Yeah. You know, that's pretty cool. I, I, I know growing up, I used to watch a lot of hunting TV, and I, I don't watch any hunting TV anymore. And it's because of that very thing, Mike. You know, And I actually watched, I can't remember, I'm going to massacre the name, but I watched the 100-miler the video, and... I was telling Mike before, like we, he just mentioned, that it was very inspiring to me. It was a great story. And, you know, that was your second one. Is that correct, Eric? Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, just kudos to you. It was a, I really was inspiring, and it was a great story. And it was just so genuine, you know, and you could see the genuineness of, of your friend and, and his family and his journey. But anyways, no, I, I think that storytelling is just super powerful. And uh, I think you do a really good job at it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and that was a good... I mean, I, I was able to get a few outdoor brands um, signed on as sponsors for that one. That was kind of my first foray into trying to like, this is, here's my concept, here's my idea. And I think it would fit your brand well. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how much time I spent trying to sell my concept <laughs> to, to outdoor brands on that one and several others, you know, and, and there's a lot of swings and misses before you actually connect on that stuff. And I think that's just all all part of it. You have to be willing and able to fail an awful lot before you uh, before you hit the ball on a lot of these things. And I, you know, like I said, this is all just practice for the next one for me. So I kind of enjoy that process. I enjoy the learning process, and that comes with plenty of failures. I've come to accept that. <laughs> I kind of like the fact that it's hard to get it sold. It's hard to put it out there because you know. You look at cameras nowadays, I mean, you could put a mm. monkey behind some of these cameras and they're going to get good stuff in certain situations, yeah. right? So yep. I think making it so it's not so easy and making it so you're having to produce good work, it just weeds out so many people. And then it also makes some of these people that have the talent just know, hey, I've got to put in the time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while and I have to be really good at my craft to actually make this be a success by getting a little help and getting it paid for. Yeah, no, you're right. There's the barrier to entry has gotten smaller with the technology advances. It certainly required a lot more skill when we were shooting film, right? Yep. So you're right. That barrier to entry is not a bad thing. It weeds out some of the garbage, I suppose. Yeah. So what's on the radar now for you? Do you have any uh, cool things that you can talk about at the moment or is it something that you're still kind of working on? Yeah, um, everything changed about a month ago. So a lot of my, a lot of what I had going went away. Um, thankfully, I did have a couple passion projects that I was, uh, films that I was working on. So 
those are kind of those are still going. I'm able to do some work on those, but one of them is I've partnered with Pheasants Forever and um, working on a hunting film, a short, another short similar to you know similar style to the ones you're talking about that I'll be mostly shooting this fall, and it's a story about the tradition of upland hunting and the relationship between hunter and dog and hunter and family, and and it involves a a trip to South Dakota to pheasant hunt. So I'm really excited about that one. It's a really, <laughs> yeah. And my other path, I've, I've, for years, I've wanted to, t- to do a story about, cause I'm my, one of my passions is hunting dogs and uh, bird hunting. So I've wanted to incorporate that into a film for years. And I finally found the right character with the right story that makes it a legit story in my mind. So I'm really excited to be able to incorporate another one of my passions into a film, which yeah, involves a, a trip to South Dakota is not a bad thing at all in my mind. So that, that one I'm excited for this fall. Um, and then I've got a couple other conservation-based ones that are in the works now, kind of around like public land and access and that kind of stuff. So so yeah, no shortage of, of fun stuff to work on. It's more a matter of when things open up enough that I can kind of get back to filming it. Right. And it's such a huge question mark to know when that's going to be, right? Right. Yeah. It's, that's a stressful, a stressful thing to deal with. <laughs> for everybody yeah i mean uh it's totally changed my whole year and you enter every year knowing okay well i'm going to do some similar things that i did last year and i can count on this and right. i can do this and then all of a sudden this got thrown at us and boy there's not anything that is similar it's and a, every day is just a new day and you kind of wake up wondering what's what's the new curveball today or what are we going to do or how am i going to proceed from this point but your point about doing personal projects there's no better time than right now, right? I mean, if you can get out and find some people or pursue your thing, there should be nothing holding you back. It's not like I got to go take care of this client. That client is waiting for stuff to change too. So use that time to benefit ourselves and, and do these passion projects, which I think builds our whole business. If you are knocking down these passion projects, you're going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, I think it's important for everybody to make room for passion projects. And if you're lucky and you work hard enough, I think oftentimes you can turn those passion projects into your paying work. And that's, that's kind of the goal for all of us. I think that's the ideal is, is to be doing work that you would be doing whether you get paid for it or not. Right. Hey, uh, what's it like in Bozeman? We talked earlier and we do a couple other podcasts and we had an occasion to go up to Bozeman to record some podcasts with Meat Eater and we did some stuff with Sitka and, um, I had no idea what a little power center that is as far as the outdoor world and also outdoor yeah. media. I mean, there's a lot. Randy Newberger's there. Your meat eater's there. Like I said, Sitka's there. Onyx is there. I mean, there's all this cool stuff. What's it like being there? I, I mean, I'm kind of envious. I'm in Denver and it's, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure all that stuff exists around here, but being in Bozeman and having that environment and that just that cool little town, but also having everything that we love in that town, it's got to be kind of fun. Yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely become kind of a little mini hub of outdoor and outdoor media. I think, yeah, it's good. I mean, I think it's good competition. There's a lot of people that you can learn from. It's cool to have contemporaries that close that you can partner with to do projects or you can collaborate with between all those companies that you just named that's a big swingers in the outdoor world right now right and to have them that close is pretty cool you know although as you guys know it's a global industry that we're working in so i think you can be based in salt lake city and or wherever and still access a lot of these companies but it is cool to be able to sit down face to face with some of them and collaborate yeah, I just like the vibe. I mean, when I was up yeah. there, you know, it's just that cool little town. You got the mountains, you got Yellowstone not that far away, and you got all this talent there, and everybody's just as passionate as you are. That's yeah. what's cool about it. And for me, it you know, and just the collaboration. Today's world, it's all about collaboration, right? You look on YouTube, yeah. and you try to grow a YouTube channel, and you do a little research, and everybody's like, well, you've got to collaborate. You just yeah. got to work with somebody else, and, you know, you each help each other out and it just raises the tide for everybody. So absolutely. I, uh, I'm envious of where you're at. Yeah. Well, it's a great place for a number of reasons that that's definitely one of them. And it's, and you're right. The collaboration, it's not just in video or, or photography. Like that's, that's certainly how we succeed in whatever platform or whatever media you're involved in, or, you know, even developing contacts or developing clients. That's the way the world works now. It's not like you can blind email 
a business and say, hey, I really want to take photos for your, you know, your camel company or whatever, you don't expect to hear back. You need to you need to make personal connections, I think, in order to be successful. And the way to do that is collaborating with people and sitting down face to face or going on a hunt with them or whatever it is, going out fishing with them. Um, that's how you develop the relationships, which turn into clients. I actually have some comments <laughs> to make, but it's more along the lines of, you know, on your North Dakota trip, I'm sure you're going to need a gear packer. So if you're you're looking for somebody, <laughs> you mean South Dakota? South Dakota, oh, South Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good to know. <laughs> so the dog that appears on your Instagram account that that is one of your passions, right? The dog that's taken over my Instagram account. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's the latest addition to the fleet. That's yeah, Zeke, um, my German short hair pointer that we just got uh, about three weeks ago. And man, I tell you what, that was the perfect timing to get a puppy, not just for my kids, but for oh. me just to have that distraction right now has been really fantastic. So it uh, keeps my mind wandering to October pheasant hunts, which isn't a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, having this time, talk about a personal project. That's like the perfect yeah. little personal project that requires daily attention, right? Yeah. And it, you know, requires daily walks in the woods with a camera. All that stuff is good for me. I, I thrive in that scenario. So having a reason that I have to go out for a walk every morning and every evening with my camera, it's It's all good. What's the training process like for that dog? I mean, obviously they already have it, right? They already have a lot yeah. of sense of, of being able to be a hunting dog, but how far are you going with this guy? Um, I worked for a dog trainer through high school, so I have just enough working knowledge on on the basics to get my dogs to where I want them to be for hunting. They're not steady to wing and shot or anything like that, but that's not as important to me as because I'm not doing field trials or anything. I'm strictly utilitarian for my hunting purposes. So, but it's all fun, right? You know, he's 11 weeks now, so it's just it's more exposing him to new things and new situations. That's that's the fun part, and then. And then my philosophy is just get them on as many wild birds as possible because they they come with the like you say they come with that bundle of instincts. Really, what my job is is just to expose them to as much as possible to kind of bring that instinct out. So that just means more more time spent in the field with birds, which I'm all about. Yeah. Well, and there's got to be just tons of passion project thoughts around that too right when you just have these all these little experiences with oh that whole process totally. we yeah my kids and i broke out the camera yesterday and followed him around with the gimbal with my idea being you know sometime 12 years from now wouldn't it be cool to have good footage of this puppy stage to tell the life story of a bird dog from you know from the owner's perspective or who knows if anything will ever come of it, but yeah, you're, you're right. There's a lot of seeds planted when you're following around an 11 week old puppy and all the potential that is wrapped up in that little bundle. <laughs> That's awesome. I, you, just that thought process and thinking ahead like that. I, I remember 10, 20 years ago, we would talk about, man, it'd be so cool to be documenting long, say 10 yeah. or 20 year time-lapse projects where you show the changes that go on either environmentally or just in cities with with uh, growth and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's such a monumental project that a lot of times you think about it and then quickly it's gone. But having the foresight to actually dig into it now and then archive that stuff and hopefully pick back up on it in 12 years would be pretty cool. Yeah, I know. And then your mind quickly goes to what's the media going to be like? In, like, <laughs> is this hard drive even going to be readable in 12 years? Right. How do I convert this to a hologram? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it feels like everything we, we know right now is going to be completely irrelevant then. But, you know, you, still that first step is just hitting record. So I can do that much. Well, and if you look at your, your film Paradise, I mean, you started out with some what looked to be very historical like eight millimeter footage of a mountain yeah you know so yeah. it, you can find ways to make it work and, and creative ways to put it together yeah no absolutely that that old footage adds so much depth to a story i think i think it does and it's cool for me it's just awesome to to dig into that kind of stuff and for a while there i was just collecting old photographs if I could find an old photograph on eBay, I would buy it. If it was part of the outdoors or it was had anything mm -hmm. to do with hunting or fishing or 
wildlife, I would try to buy it up. I don't know what I was going to do with it. I just thought it was cool. And, you know, yeah, yep, absolutely. Well, it's been super fun to talk to you. I'd love to meet you in person someday and just uh, shoot the bull and maybe even work on a project somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Next time you guys get to Montana, let me know. It'd be fun to go out and shoot. Do you have a particular wildlife that you like to shoot over another? I mean, like we all have our little favorites. Do you have that or is that something that um, you'll just take whatever you can get? I really love shooting bison. I just think they're cool critters. Mostly I'll take whatever I can get, but I do tend to find myself shooting more bison than anything else, I guess. Maybe it's because you're closest to the road. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I keep hearing about the bison rut. And uh, isn't that what, in July or August? It's like second, third week of July kind of time frame. Yeah. I would love to shoot that at some point. Maybe this is the year. I mean, I was planning on going to Alaska, but I'm still, I'm like, I don't even know. I talked to a buddy up there yesterday and they have a 14 day quarantine still in place if you come into Alaska. So you pretty much just hole up and wait it out, but that might be on the radar. Yeah. Like I say, thanks so much for your time today. It was Super fun to talk to you, and I'm a devout follower of now of your page because there's so much cool work on it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been really fun to chat with you guys. Could you uh, just throw out your Instagram handle for people and then also any of the links? So if somebody's listening to this over audio and they're driving down the road and they can't get to our show notes or whatever, just throw out your contact information just so that somebody could check that out. And then, like I say, we will put it in the show notes. So if, if somebody's sitting at their office and they're taking part of this podcast and they can just check your workout very easily. But for the drivers or for the audio listeners, what, what are your handles? It's pretty much all Eric Peterson photo and it's Eric with a K Peterson S E N. So Eric Peterson photo.com and, and Eric Peterson photo on Instagram. I had the great uh, fortune of having the most, generic name in all of the midwest with both <laughs> eric and peterson so there's only about five thousand of us out there oh <laughs> uh, yeah you got lucky to snag those up <laughs> right right exactly yeah. all right well thanks so much we appreciate your time thank you guys i appreciate it You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.